This is Garden Variety, a horticulture podcast from Iowa Public Radio and Iowa State University Extension and Outreach. I'm Charity Nebbe. Honeybees get busy in the springtime as soon as the first blossoms show themselves, and they stay busy until frost in the fall. They're not a native species, but they are essential to our food system in the United States, and they, of course, provide us with honey. Randall Cass is Iowa State University Extension bee specialist, and he is with me now. Hello, Randall. Hi, Charity. How you doing? Good. Thank you so much for being here. And you've been around for a few years, but you are Iowa State University Extension's first full-time dedicated bee specialist in 70 years. Is there a growing need in Iowa for this kind of support? Um, yeah, absolutely. I would say that over the past 10, 20 years, backyard beekeeping has become uh, an activity that Iowans are interested in. And so we're seeing a lot more beekeepers, a lot more new beekeepers that, that need uh, a helping hand through that first year with the steep learning curve of beekeeping. Well, so I'm, I'm happy to fill that role. And it feels like that that rise in interest is coupled with this rising awareness of the mysterious colony collapse disorder and, and really a plight of honeybees around the world. Do you th- think those two things are connected? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people see... Uh, keeping bees or, or beekeeping with honeybees as a way um, to assist with honeybee populations. But I always try to let them know that um, honeybees are, are semi-domesticated animals. We can think of them, they're, they're actually categorized as livestock by the USDA. So we can think of them almost as cows. Um, and while we do lose honeybees at faster rates than we did 10 or 20 years ago because of different parasites that are out there or diseases, honeybees aren't necessarily the bees that need saving. In Iowa, we've got nearly 400 species of native bee around, and um, those are the ones that can really benefit from the decisions we make in terms of creating better habitat and nesting sites for native species of bee. So I always try to remind people, honeybees are a lot of fun, but if you really want to save the bees, we should think about these other you know, over 300 species of bee that we have in the state. Well, and it feels like the rising awareness because of the problems that honeybees were having also has created more awareness of our native pollinators and people planting flowers. Do you think that's yeah. true? Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of people are really interested in that. And I, I think a lot of people are honestly relieved. They're a little hesitant to start beekeeping if that's the way they need to help out the environment. And when I tell them, no, you can just plant more things, create more <laughs> habitat, they think, oh, great, that way I don't have to get stung or, you know, haul all those heavy boxes full of honey around. But I, I also think there's a certain romance to the idea of beekeeping. This is something that gets people really excited. Why do you think people should give it a try? Um. Well, it, there's a lot of reasons to do it. Um, for me, at least, uh, I, I got, uh, how do you say, like bit by the bug. Um, <laughs> the more I learn about the bees, the more fascinated I become. I fall down this rabbit hole because the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know very much. Uh, bees are really fascinating in terms of their, their social behavior, and in terms of the, uh, the way that they pollinate, um, the, the important role they play in our ecosystem. So I think that they're such a fascinating creature that that's a reason to get into it. Another reason would be uh, more more research is coming out finding that beekeeping is kind of good for our mental health as well. There are a lot of programs focused on folks with PTSD that try to get them into hives and things like that. Beekeeping is a is a very healthy um, you know uh, activity uh, for your mental health as well. You have bees at Iowa State. Tell me about your bees. Okay, my bees. Well, they are uh, Italian variety uh, of honey of European honeybees. Um, 
we do both research and honey production here at the university and sometimes we're able to overlap those activities so for example we are producing two different types of honey uh, one honey that we have here at our horticulture research station farm um, and so the bees there are foraging on clover that we planted for them uh, as well as whatever's growing there at the farm including things like fruit trees and then a lot of our research has focused on the landscape effect of bees so we've placed uh, the iowa landscape effect on our honeybee health uh, and so we placed hives at farm sites where they've uh, incorporated the conservation agricultural practice of prairie strips so uh, they put strips of prairie into their land that offer all these environmental benefits and they also create great foraging habitat for our honeybees and that makes a honey that has a different uh, flavor to it because the, the bees are visiting all these different Iowa native prairie flowers. And it gives us sort of a unique thing. So uh, with those two different types of honey, we've got bees at the, our two different sites uh, producing that honey for us, for us to sell. When you uh, are educating beekeepers, are you educating uh, hobby beekeepers or do you also work with commercial beekeepers? The majority of the people I talk to are hobby beekeepers new beekeepers. Uh, I do a lot of extension talks with different beekeeping clubs uh, across the state. And so those consist mostly of uh, folks that have fewer than 10 hives, although uh, there's a few. So that, that's what we would refer to as backyard beekeepers, folks that just have a handful of hives. Then if they're starting to sell at farmer's markets, they're a little bit larger. We call those sideline beekeepers. And I do talk to quite a few of those as well. But in terms of the commercial folks, uh, folks that have thousands of thousands of hives that they put on semi-trucks and ship around the country for pollination services of different crops. Um, I don't do, they, they've got it down. They've got it down. They don't need my help too much. So mostly backyard folks. What are the barriers to entry? You talked about people maybe not wanting to lug around the heavy boxes, but beekeepers need a lot of specialized equipment as well. How much does it take to really start up? Yeah, it's a, it can be a, a large investment for folks. Um, and so actually this past year, I've created an extension handout that's available at the ISU extension store that talks about um, all the things you need in order to get started beekeeping. It goes over all the different pieces of equipment you want to be thinking about purchasing, uh, the amount of labor, because I think a lot of people think that beekeeping is sort of set it and forget it. I can get my hives in April and leave them alone till I harvest honey in August when really you've got to be inspecting your hives regularly. So there's a certain amount of labor that's involved. Uh, and at the end of the day, between all the new equipment you need to buy, the equipment, things like treating for parasites that you'll need to do every year, um, it can add up at the end of the day. So this handout is great because it also has a budget on the back so that people can put together, uh, figure out how much money they're going to really need to invest to get started and how much money they're going to have to invest year to year to keep it going. You also started offering your beekeeping course uh, as a bilingual course in Spanish this year. Tell me about the need that, that you were answering there. Yeah, I uh, applied and received a grant from the USDA from their beginning uh, farmer and rancher development program. Um, and to see funds to start a pilot program to see if there was interest in Spanish-speaking communities across the state uh, in, in beekeeping is sort of like an economic enterprise, a, a side hustle where you could sell honey at farmers markets or sell it to your neighbors. So working with a partner organization, the Center for Rural Affairs, we were able to offer a few classes and field days um, across Iowa and a few in Nebraska as well. Um, we offered the class simultaneously, so one session in English and then one session in Spanish at the same time, followed by a hands-on field day. 
Um, and the majority of the folks that showed up were English speakers. We had a small handful of Spanish speakers. Um, so that may say something about the level of interest or just the communities where we decide, decided to hold the class. But at the end of the day, we've created uh, all sorts of uh, translated materials and curriculum that we have available for folks. And I know that people in states that have a high amount of Spanish speakers that are interested in beekeeping, say like Florida, my colleagues at University of Florida are really excited about these materials we've produced. Oh, that's that is really terrific. And of course, Iowa has a, a growing population of Spanish speakers. So that's exciting here, too. You just got to get the word out, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me what, as a beekeeper, you are focusing on this time of year. It's, you know, the, the golden last few weeks of summer. A great up. There's so much pollen out there right now. But you also have to be thinking about winter, right? Yeah. Um, and so there's a few things to think about. Uh, this time of year, usually in August, is when we'll, we'll pull the honey off of the hives. Um, and so that means that we've put them at a bit of a disadvantage by taking some of their overwintering food stores. So uh, we kind of joke a lot of people will call in and ask about getting colonies ready for winter. You know, they'll call in in November and we say, oh, you should have really gotten started overwintering in September because uh, this is the time of year where... Uh, beekeepers might want to check the weight of their hives. If their hives are really light, that means that they don't have a lot of honey stored up. So uh, the beekeeper is going to want to uh, supplementary feed their colonies. There's a few different ways to do that, but the most common way is to provide them sugar syrup. Um, now, sugar syrup isn't quite as nutritious and as great as honey is for them, but it is something that can put some extra weight on the hive and give them enough food for them to go uh, into the winter. Uh, another... Uh, so the bees' primary diet comes from, from nectar and pollen. The nectar is sugar. It's their carbohydrate. And the pollen is their protein. So you can kind of think of it as like their complete nutrition, their, their version of rice and beans. So in addition to the sugar syrup, which is their carbohydrate, you can also give them overwintering pollen patties. Um, and that will provide a good uh, protein source for the bees as well when they go into winter. Um, so, yeah, feeding is a primary one. The other thing that folks need to be worried about as soon as they take their honey supers off is checking for varroa mite. You mentioned colony collapse uh, before, and, and while we don't think there's one single factor that causes our colonies to die off at rapid rates, we think it's several different factors working together, including pesticide exposure and forage availability, but the varroa mite parasite is the other really big factor. Uh, this is a pest that... Uh, jumped species and moved to the United States um, in the in the 80s and 90s, and it's just gotten worse and worse every year. And oftentimes, even if our hives do have varroa mite parasites, uh, we can't treat until we pull those honey supers off. So as soon as we pull those honey supers off, we're going to want to monitor for mites, check, check and see if they're, they're present in the hive, and then treat all of our colonies um, so that uh, the treatment, they can, they can um, you know, jump, uh, get better after the treatment in time to go into winter. So those are the two primary things we need to worry about, food stores and varroa mite control this time of year. And so you're taking just enough honey, you're harvesting honey, but you're leaving honey for them to survive the winter if, if you have enough, right? Yep. I, I think that that would definitely be a best practice is to, to leave some honey for the bees. Um, and th even then, you know, every colony is different. Some of them are going to be heavier than others. So then Going back, we actually have little scales that we can slide under the hive to weigh them. And we know that we want our hives to be around 100 to 120 pounds going into winter uh, so that that is enough um, uh, food stores for, the, for them to, to make it through. 
So, um, so yeah, it, try to leave some honey. And if there isn't quite enough, if it's a weaker, smaller colony, uh, think about uh, supplementary feeding. You can also, this is kind of something fun about bees, you can also combine hives as well. So let's say going into winter, I have two small colonies. I can combine them into one larger one that's more likely to survive. Randall Cass, Iowa State University Extension Bee Specialist. For more gardening information and tips, please subscribe to our Garden Variety Newsletter. You can find out more at iowapublicradio.org slash garden. I'm Charity Nubby. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Garden Variety is a production of Iowa Public Radio and Iowa State University Extension. It's produced by me, Aaron Style, Caitlin Troutman, and the Iowa Public Radio talk show team. For more garden goodness, please subscribe to our Garden Variety newsletter. Just go to iowapublicradio.org slash garden. I'm Charity Nebbe. See you next time. <laughs>